Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. Good morning, BBC. It's so great to be back in Boise. You know, for six months, I was preaching to the wall. We were doing all the virtual services, and it was just two weeks ago, we, I actually saw people like I knew they are real, they exist. <laughs> and, and this is just so awesome. So I want to thank my dear friends, um, Derek and Danny, and for this wonderful, kind invitation to be here with you all, and especially in these times. You know, I just read in the news yesterday that this pandemic has claimed one million lives, and they fear by the time they have the vaccines or whatever it is, it's going to take two million lives. Friends, we are living in unprecedented times in human history. An unprecedented crisis calls for an unprecedented level of spiritual leadership to arise. God is not looking for extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. He is looking for ordinary people who will reflect his glory to a world that desperately needs him. And when I heard that the topic is on spiritual leadership, and especially in times like this, I was deeply humbled. I was reminded of my own journey. You know, the past seven years have been the best years of my life and also the most challenging years of my life. You know, we started an organization and a church plant, and I adopted two kids with my wife and I, And one of my mentors, Chip Ingram, was joking to me, you're a brave guy. I I don't know how it's going to be. And and trust me, in three years, I was this close to burnout and was almost done. And that is when God intervened one more time in my life and spoke into my life through wonderful friends and mentors. And I want to share from the passage that I'm going to speak to you I, don't, I wish I can give you five principles to survive the pandemic or five easy ways to be awesome leaders. Well, unfortunately, I don't have that. But I'm going to share from my heart what God ministered to me during those times through the prayer that Jesus prays for me and you and for every single person in this world for all times, his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So read with me, please. I'm going to start with the first five verses. In John chapter 17, verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, what an incredible blessing it is to know right now Jesus Christ is praying for you and me as our high priest. He's interceding on your behalf and my behalf, and through him, he is able to take us right into the glorious presence of God himself. 
You know, there is an app called Calm that's gotten very popular during this pandemic. And, and part of that is when you use this, it helps you to empty yourself, empty your mind. But when we go into God's presence, it's not about emptying our souls. It is being filled with God's glory. That's going to help us to experience him in ways we have never experienced before. So Jesus in this high priestly prayer gives us three simple things. He's, we can see how he prays, why he prays, and what he prays for. How he prays, you know, the very first word Jesus uses in his prayer is called Father. And again, we read about that in verse 11. He says, Holy Father. And verse 25, Righteous Father. That intimate, loving, adoring relationship is the foundation of prayer. He had the perfect father. Some of us, like me, did not have very good fathers. And some of us may never be the perfect father for our children. But we have God who is such a perfect father. You know, when we had adopted Brian and Sophia, my two kids, when they came in, they had different names for me, and it was evolving. It continues to evolve even now. They would first call me JP, and, and after two weeks, um, they just suddenly decided and came into our bedroom, and, and out of the blue, called me Daddy. And the first time I heard that, it just messed me up, you know, because I had a very difficult relationship with my father. And, and then it evolved from there as they started getting more and more closer. Daddy became Papa and Poppy. And two weeks ago, I have a new name. It's called Papoy. And they only use that when they feel so intimate with me, when they feel so safe with me, when they have this loving, tender moment that they have complete abandonment and they can call me that and they know that I have their attention. That's the word Jesus uses for his prayer. We should pray not because we should, not because you are in Bible school, not because you are in ministry, not because we want X, Y, Z. Do we pray because we want to call our Father God as Daddy or Papa in Christ? That's the foundation. You know, one of my friends who serves, uh, does inner city ministry, um, he had an amazing life. You know, he was a former gangster. He had been stabbed multiple times. So he is ministering to gangs and trying to keep kids out of them. And he said when he was in his former life, he had a daughter and his marriage was wrecked. And then God saved him and then he married and had kids again. And every time he tries to reach to his first daughter and tries to connect with her, she would tell him, Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I need that. And, and he will do it. And the moment she receives that, she's gone. And he says, it breaks my heart because I know every time she talks to me, it's because she wants something from me and not love me. Isn't that how we do sometimes our prayers? We go to God when we need stuff, and it sometimes tends to be all about us. But prayer is this relational act of love that opens up God's heart to us. And that's what Jesus is tapping into. And briefly, why does he pray? You know, we pray to avoid suffering. We pray, oh gosh, take this pandemic away. 
God, I want to just go out and have fun and do all the things I need. But he prays, Father, the hour has come. And the hour was always referring to the cross. And Jesus was praying for suffering, for God to allow pain in his life and not take it away. I know some of you are probably going to enter full-time ministry. And some of you are going to be in place of work. And let me break it to you. I'm sorry to break it to you. Ministry is painful. Ministry is one that any impactful ministry is one that involves the cross. People will hurt you. Your close friends will turn against you. Others may try to put you down. And every single time to get back needs something stronger. And that brings us to what is it that Jesus prays for? What is his ask? What does he ask God in his prayer? You know, in this first passage, he's praying specifically for one thing, God's glory. And, and subsequently, he's going to pray for his disciples. And finally, he's going to pray for you and me, people who are going to come to know him all over the world. But five times in these, in these few verses, the one word he keeps using again and again and again is the word glory. When we pray, we want to pray for our glory. We want to pray for what we think we need in our life that is going to make our lives great. But Jesus prays. For his father's glory. He says, glorify me so I can glorify you. Becoming a spiritual leader is impossible as long as the focus of our prayer is ourselves. You know, prayer is a mirror that reveals what we treasure in our hearts. If our prayers are always about, God, I need this, God, I want this, God, I need to be famous, I need to be successful, I want to have the biggest church, I want to have the maximum followers on my Instagram, that's not the way to spiritual leadership, my friends. And that's the theme, not just in the prayer of Jesus. You can look at the prayer of all the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul's prayers, if you read it in Ephesians and Colossians, especially in Ephesians 1.15, he says he's not praying for protection. He's in prison, right? It's one of those prison episodes. He's not praying for a change in his circumstances so his life can be normal again. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened to know the riches of the glory that is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, when God had to redeem Israel out of Egypt, and he wanted to use Moses and sent these plagues upon plagues, you know, one pandemic has us, you know, covering down and hunkering down. And there were seven plagues that unleashed the nation. And he needed a leader who can be a spiritual leader in this a great transition in building the nation of Israel, and guess whom he picks? Moses. And Moses did not become a spiritual leader overnight. Before he could be the kind of leader God wanted him to be, he had to spend 40 years in the desert developing spiritual leadership. Guess what you can do in a desert? 
I mean, he grew up in Egypt. He was trained in the best of the best skills. He had multiple PhDs, and he had probably finished multiple Ironmans in his life. You know, great warrior. God didn't need any of that. He thought he can do it. He thought he had it, right? And so he goes after and tries to accomplish a good thing in the wrong way. And God said, you're going to need a 40 years detox desert plan. And now he's back. And guess what Moses prays for? He goes up Mount Sinai and there he meets with God in the burning bush. Guess what he's asking? He has the burden of the nation. He's not saying, God, give me 10 strategies to make Israel great again. He says, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, show me your glory. He knew it. He knew what he needed to be the spiritual leader. Prayer creates seismic shifts in our heart, in our understanding and experience of God, and gives us the vision and the mission we need to lead. How does this happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, he, We who gaze on the Lord's glory are being transformed. You know, the word gaze is, is a word I'm sure your Greek uh, profs would have expounded that for you. It's looking at something so intently until that aspect of the person sinks into you. You know, uh, my son Brian, he's very skilled in basketball. He's six years old, and he's a big Golden State Warriors fan, of course. I can speak here boldly because we don't have Lakers or you know, Cavaliers fans here. Hopefully, if you're there and not offended. If you're not, I'd love you to be Warriors fans anyways. So he's Steph Curry's big fan. And every time Steph Curry shoots, he's just locked in and loaded. And right after each game, he would try and do the same three-point jump shots and do the Steph Curry sign. <laughs> he kept looking at him so much that some of him stuck into him. You know, that was Steph Curry's glory that became part of his. So glory, if you look at the word in the Old Testament, the word is kavod, which means it refers to something that is weighty, something that is intense. The glory of a person is what is it that's so significant about that person that is weighty about that person. So what is it that makes God glorious? What is this weightiness, if we can use that word? You know, the weightiness of God is His love, is His holiness, His power. And it is until that sinks into you, that becomes your weightiness, you don't get it. You know, it is one thing to just know in your mind that God is holy, but it is another thing to experience the holiness of God in your heart. It is one thing to know that God is wise, but it is another thing to experience his wisdom in your heart. It is one thing to know that God is powerful, but it is another thing until that weightiness sinks in and you're able to trust God's power. And all these heavy things that make God weighty can only become us, for us, in prayer, when we gaze upon him. 
If you're worried, even though you believe in his wisdom and love, but if your life is constantly filled with anxiety and worry, you know, your real problem is that his wisdom and love hasn't hit you. You don't feel the weight of it. You don't see the glory of it. You know, if you're unable to see friends at work or neighbors as someone who are going to be worshiping together, but someone who are different than you, you're not struck by what makes God glorious. You know, as humans, we are always pursuing our glory. But here's the thing. Please listen. Whatever is most weighty for us will transform us. Paul is saying that we will be transformed into the likeness of whatever is most weighty for us. May I ask you what is weighty for you right now? If your weightiness is relationships, what do I mean by that? If you're always wanting to feel loved, important, and you're always thinking what everyone is thinking about you and letting that encourage or discourage you, that's your glory. That's your weightiness. And that's going to get you. But when you come into God's presence, he's going to free you from that and say, no, that's not going to get you because you are incredibly loved and accepted that I was willing to die for you on the cross. And all our problems come because something besides God is standing there and saying, I'm important, and you're saying, you're right. And prayer is where God exposes that and takes that off and brings his glory and his weightiness into our hearts. And that's what happens by gazing into this awesome God so that all his characteristics can pound our hearts and transform us. Seeing he is holy, we want to be holy. Seeing he is love, we want to be loved. Seeing he seeks all nations to worship him and wanting to be his children, we have that mission into our life. How does this happen? He says, I'm going to close in a couple of minutes. He uses two words. Uh, uh, two times another word in the rest of this passage, eternal life. You know, main job of a priest was to go into God's presence and present the sacrifice so he and those he represented does not get killed. And Jesus does that as our high priest. He's telling God, sacrifice me now so I can give eternal life once and for all. And what is eternal life? It is knowing him. That is eternal life. You know, Moses, when he wants to see God, God tells Moses, I can't show it to you, Moses, all at once because you will be overwhelmed, you will be consumed. So he hides him in a cleft so he sees us back. But in Christ, we read that God has revealed all about him in Christ. God has revealed his glory in Christ. God cannot do anything greater than what he has done in Christ and it is going to take an eternity to unpack that for you and me and that is why he says knowing this Christ is eternal life. 
Eternal life is not just trying to make it to heaven and then kick our legs up and, and grab a drink and just be singing praise and worship songs. He says that is eternal life. Fullness of God dwells in him. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, he says, what God has shined a light into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, I remember this quote by Ravi Zacharias who passed away recently and someone who has influenced me a lot. And this is what he says about this verse. You know, for the Hebrews, the light was a big deal. God is the light of my salvation because God led them by light in the, in the night and all of those things. For the Romans, it's all about glory, you know, conquering the world and expanding their kingdom. And for the Greeks, it was all about knowledge, learning and philosophizing about life. And so in that context, when Paul wants to present Christ, he says, Christ is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And knowing him and getting his glory into us is to help us to see the glory of God. And to do that, Jesus said he was willing to lose his glory. And to do that on the cross, he was willing to let his relationship get disrupted. Only place where Jesus does not God as call God as Father was on the cross, where he says, my God, my God. You know why? Because of my sinfulness, my selfishness, my seeking my glory. But every time I go into his presence, he's going to show that and show what he has done for me so I can forget about seeking my glory and go after seeking his glory. I'm going to lead us into a time of Q&A with Dr. Voorhees now where we can see how can we apply this to our lives. You know, maybe these all sound too lofty and big out there, but it is my prayer that we pray more. This is what God used to break me. He showed me what was the glory I was seeking and how I just needed to shift my heart towards his glory. May God bless these words for you. Thank you. Okay, JP, so what we want to do right now for about 10 or 15 minutes is I want to kind of just, let's get a little more practical. Sure. So thank you for the charge. Uh, I want to chase this glory idea down with a little bit more detail with you. And I think this is helpful because you, you serve in a church right now with some young leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, some that are immediately out of college yes. or out of a graduate school. And, but you have some young leaders in your church who work for Apple or Microsoft or, or Intel or they work for VMware or they work for Facebook or they work in the Silicon Valley. So will you get really granular with regards to things that you would say to a group of young leaders that uh, the appetite for glory, you know, talk about how they could overcome the challenge of the hunger and thirst as young leaders for such glory. You've seen it in yourself. You see it in leaders. You see it in this generation. Yeah. What, what's that hunger of glory? How do we counteract that? No, that's a great question, Derek, and that's something you feel it when you enter the Silicon Valley. 
Because Silicon Valley, though they say it is a godless place, there are two gods that rule the Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's the god of success and god of money. And when you drink the Kool-Aid and say, I want to be successful no matter what, and it's all about, you know, they say the goal of many young people is to, uh, previously was just get out of college, get a job, and, you know, climb the corporate ladder and, and make it to the top. Now it's, at least in the Silicon Valley, they want to come and start their own company, become an entrepreneur, and retire in their mid-30s. And if you don't retire by then, uh, you're a failure. That's the pressure that gets the young people. And when they do make it, mm -hmm. they say it's empty. Hmm. When they have, there are many young millionaires in Silicon Valley in their you know, early 30s, and then they, they come and say, my life's empty. And, and realize they've been chasing the wrong things. Would you say the same thing for young men and women that are looking to do something in the ministry, that there's an emptiness in self-seeking glory? Yeah, I think sadly, uh, Derek, at least I, I'm not sure here in, in Idaho how it is. I think the church in the Silicon Valley, rather than impacting the corporate world and influencing it, mm. has let the corporate world's ideas seep into it. That it's now become the same, it's success, mm. but it's quoted as, oh, how do we reach more people, you know? How many people are showing up? How many people are following mm. me on you know, YouTube and things like that? So it is very hard if our eyes are not set on Jesus to, to buy that and, and go crash. Do you see some of the young leaders in your church willing to be mentored? And is that relationship a way to counteract some self-seeking glory? Or what other things like that could help counteract that? No, absolutely. I think they need good inspirational models because many mm -hmm. of these things are caught than taught. Mm -hmm. And when they see some godly leaders um, who have modeled this in their life, they are willing to listen. So we are now partnering with other churches to provide mentors and mentees between us mm -hmm. so that these people who have gone there can share their experiences. Okay. And so JP has a foot in the marketplace as well as in the located ministry. You've been in both of those. Right. Uh, our students, you know, for the most part are here to get some training for ministry, but we realize that some of that ministry will be in the marketplace, maybe not necessarily in the church. So we're really training them to be equipped for a variety of ministries. Our heart is for the church. Right. But let's talk about the marketplace for a moment. Sure. Um, how, how can young Christians glorify God in a secularized marketplace? Thank you for that question, Derek. That's a great question. It's very dear to my heart, too. Uh, you know, we spend 90% of our time awake in the marketplace and 10% in the church. And we need to either, whether you're going to be a pastor or you're going to be in the marketplace, uh, Billy Graham said that the next move of God is going to be through Christians in the marketplace. And so we need to glorify God in the marketplace, right? This is so dear to God. The Bible opens with God working, you know, creating the world, unleashing zillions of products in perfect fashion. And in the end, in the new heavens and new Jerusalem, where it's going to be you and me working and bringing all the goodness of our work. So we need to figure out how to do this right now. And, and that is where I, I would say there are three things that a Christian can do in the marketplace in reflecting God's glory. You know, the first, um, I would say, would be excellence. 
You know, excellence is a way to demonstrate God's holiness. You know, we serve a holy God, and, and we, the way you reflect that is by being excellent in what you do. And that is what will give us the respect of our non-Christian friends to hear us say, why do you do that? And, and not because we want to make money, but because we want to glorify God. So what's the challenge to excellence? Well, the challenge to excellence is always, uh, I see Christians sometimes, it's kind of counterintuitive. They would be busy at church, you know, so they would have like three church programs they're signed up, and they think ministry is just inviting friends to that event and slack off in their work. Uh. And, and that just is, is not right. Or on the other hand, they would take excellence, but use that as a cover-up to just go up the corporate ladder, you know. Uh. But, but more than that, I think the uh, other biggest factor, I, I remember this because, you know, my, my, my uh, grad school supervisor, he's a German prof, he's the best in the field. Um, it took me three years to connect with him. And, and finally, uh, after I moved here, we met for an international talk at UC Santa Barbara. That was the first time I was able to have a God conversation with him. And that's the first time he ever heard the gospel. And, and of course, our conversation did not go much because he thought only stupid people believe in God. <laughs> and by now he knew I was not very stupid because I'm a student and he's seen me doing well. But his wife was someone God worked and opened up through that. And, 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 and it has helped me every time in, in the Bay Area is to share the gospel is people see, okay, you're, you're someone who's demonstrated excellence, and if you believe in God, tell me, how can I hear him? Right? So let's chase it down a little bit further. Would, would a work ethic play alongside or run alongside excellence? Yeah, I would say excellence, just by not in and of itself, combined with compassion and integrity. Uh, you know, right, integrity right. is the big deal in the Bay Area. You know, I would, I've traveled with senior executives around the world. They would travel halfway around the world to cheat on their spouses. And, and, and I remember a moment where there was a compromising uh, situation where we had to have a meeting at a place that I did not believe in. And I had to stand up and say, I'm leaving this. Huh. And, and that really, I thought it would make everyone look down, but then after leaving that, it gave me an opportunity to connect with that executive who, was, who felt so guilty hmm. and came back and, and said, I'm sorry, I, I'd like to know why. Hmm. And, and then responding in compassion. You know, we don't want to be judging people. We don't want to be looking down on them. Yeah. People are hurt. People are broken. Hmm. And, and there was this colleague who shared the space with me and we had a small fight sort of about an idea we were talking about. And I felt convicted, and he was going through a tough time, and, and you know, we invited him home and gave him dinner, and uh, he was surprised, because yeah. that's not how people usually respond after a fight. And, and, and we were able to have a good conversation on the gospel, and three years later, he died for a, a medical condition. Huh. And I was thinking, that was a very small thing, but I think this is how we can impact the marketplace, and, and lastly, it's why do you do what you do? Hmm. You know, finding your calling, what is the product you're making? That is where you ultimately glorify God. Is the product that I make something that's going to serve humanity? Or is it going to be something, they say 99% of the products are made for people in the top 1% of the human pyramid. Hmm. 
And, and there are these 95% of people in the bottom who make less than a dollar a day who have needs and no one is thinking of making products. I think God will be pleased when people think about them and work for them. And I see that very encouraging with a lot of young people now. They want to do that as Christians. Mm. That warms my heart. Okay, one minute. Last question. Then I want to spend some time praying together before we go. Sure. Look at this group, Leaders for the Church. Yeah. How would you encourage them going forward? Well, I would say uh, the best encouragement I have is find your calling when you're here. You know, I, I see a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, three out of four people in the United States believe they are in the wrong job. I had a guy who was working in my former research lab. He had a lab coat, and he actually wrote on the back of his uh, lab coat, I hate my job. And he would go before his manager every day and have a meeting hmm. so his manager can see that. And I think my advice would be, you're in the best place here with some godly people, and this is a bubble, and make the best and find your calling which is going to be the intersection of your best gifts and talents and, and the world's greatest needs and hunger. Mm. And that's what I would say. I know you may all think, I just want to make it straight A's in all my courses. No one is going to ask you what your grade was. Even you may not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, if there are profs here, I apologize. <laughs> I don't mean for your students not to put in the hard work, but that would be my encouragement that you find your calling and, uh, and, and see if there are anything else you're seeking for your self-glory and, and pursue God's glory. Thanks, JP. JP's going to be around. He'll be in the calf. He'll be in the sub. I'd encourage you to take a moment, take five minutes, go up to him. And here's a lead-in question, okay, an easy one to start off with. JP, how do you see the church being effective in the Silicon Valley? That's a great question. How is God working through the church in the Silicon Valley, in the San Francisco Bay Area? You ask him that and just buckle up. And uh, he will share with you what he sees God doing. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.